my grandfather and I always had ideas about how we could develop bicycle products and it seems like, you know, we were always too busy with the day to day, handling the job shop customers that kept us afloat. But about, I don't know, maybe it's more, it's nearly 15 years ago now, I can't recall the exact origins. We needed uh, some bicycle toe spikes. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff, and I'm here with my co-host, Lloyd Graff. Today, we're talking to Scott Livingston of Horst Engineering. Scott has meshed his passion for cycling with his love of the precision machining business and come up with a patented product sold worldwide. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graff Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graff Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thank you. Um, you were telling us uh, that you uh, have done a few podcasts before yourself. Do you, you host them? Yes. Uh, I host something called Global Conference Calls for YPO. YPO is a leadership organization, and I've done a lot of work with the YPO Family Business Network and recently the Run, Bike, Swim Network, which is uh, a personal network. And... Uh, we, we do global conference calls that we record, and then we broadcast as podcasts. Very cool. Interesting. How did you uh, get involved with the YPO? It, it's been a 15-year journey for me. I was recruited by a friend of mine, Chris Ulbrich. You may know Ulbrich from the stainless steel world. Uh, they, they were a supplier back in the early 2000s when they owned a metals distributor here. They've since gotten out of the bar stock market, but Chris told me that if I really wanted to get the most out of uh, peer networking, that YPO was the organization to be part of. And my my interest in YPO has continued to this day. I, I contribute a lot of time. It's the kind of organization that you get out what you put into it. Okay. Let's start off uh, by understanding how you got into this business, Scott. Sure. Uh, do you want me to just give you a little background about uh, my family business? Yeah, absolutely. So the Horst Engineering family of companies uh, was founded in 1946 by my grandfather. Uh, his birth name was Horst Rolf Liebenstein. Uh, he came from Germany to New York in October of 1938. I describe him as a lucky man. He didn't bring much with him and he left a lot behind, including his parents. He had two brothers, uh, an older brother, Berthold, who had moved to Kenya in the early 1930s, 
Uh, he passed away there in 1940, a single man. I think he got malaria. His younger brother, Hans, moved to Cape Town in 1934 and raised a family with three daughters in South Africa. My grandfather didn't see him for 30 years, from 1934 to 1964. But they reunited, and uh, ultimately in the late 70s, when apartheid was really hurting South Africa, uh, most of my Uncle Hans's family moved to Connecticut, and many of them took jobs in our business at the time. So my grandfather uh, you know, comes to New York, uh, does the whole Ellis Island thing. He changes his name to Harry Livingston, so Liebenstein is directly translated Loving Stone, but he had cousins who had been here since the teens, changed their name to Livingston, and uh, Horst became Harry. And a lot of people don't realize that Horst Engineering is technically named after his first name. So there were other names to the business. You know, he was moonlighting throughout the early 40s, uh, but ultimately when he launched the business, he gave it the name Horst Engineering and Manufacturing Company. All of that was spelled out. It doesn't fit in any form field, so we go by Horst Engineering. Uh, you know, he, he was a tool and die maker uh, by trade, but also a very skilled and educated engineer. He literally went to school with rocket scientists in Germany. Uh, many of the same classmates uh, from Ilmenau, where he studied uh, and got his bachelor's and master's in mechanical engineering, went on to be part of NASA uh, and the group of rocketeers that... Uh, the Von Braun? Yeah, Huntsville, uh, Alabama era. So, uh, he, you know, this is a long explanation about how the business was started, but it really started with him. You know, he learned the, the metalworking trade in a bicycle factory in Germany in his teens. Wow. Oh, so you have the, the long history in the bicycle industry. That's right. So we're just, clo we're just connecting the dots and closing the loop for <laughs> my grandfather when we... Okay, did you know your grandfather? Yes, uh, he uh, died in 1998, so 20 years ago uh, this fall at the age of 86. So mm -hmm. I started full-time at Horst in 95, but had worked for many years on a part-time basis. So I had the pleasure of working with him full-time while he was in his retirement years. But he never stopped working. He died, well, he worked within two weeks of passing away. Wow. And, and was your father in the business too? Yes. So uh, Horst, my grandfather, had three sons. Stanley is the oldest. He's my father. Uh, Stephen is the middle brother, uh, my uncle. And Bert, named after his uncle, was the uh, youngest. Stephen and Stanley were partners in this business with help from my mother for decades. So they came into the business in the early 60s, and both of them still work, uh, you know, on a, a somewhat part-time basis. I think people would say my father works 50 hours a week, which is halftime. What, and what, before you go any further, what parts are you mainly making, or what, what were you making with your grandfather and your dad? How has that evolved? So people have a little background on the business. Sure. I mean, I'll work backwards briefly. Today, we're 98-plus percent aerospace. Uh, we're a contract manufacturer of precision machine components. Uh, our core parts are under six inches in diameter. We're primary turn, so we're talking Swiss screw machining, turning, milling. One of our 
uh, core competencies is thread rolling. So fasteners are a big product line for us. We do thread rolling as a service as well for companies all over the country and in Canada. Uh, our customers are some of the largest aerospace OEMs in the world and then their ecosystems. You know, we may talk a little bit more about that during the call. It's not where we got our start. I mean, my grandfather fancied himself as an inventor. Being a tool and die maker, he did a lot of um, short run. In the 40s and 50s, uh, the industry in the Hartford area was, uh, you know, mind-blowing how, how significant it was. A couple of his large customers were Royal typewriters and Underwood typewriters, both headquartered here in Hartford. Hmm. We keep a typewriter in our conference room as a reminder that you have <laughs> to change, right? And uh, But the firearms industry, the, the bottle-making industry, the machine tool industry, plus aerospace, all significant markets here in the Hartford area at that time. And it evolved over the years, but Stan and Steven really brought the business into high precision, which is what allowed us to forge our way into aerospace and thankfully that's what sustains us today because Stan and Steven is your your grandfather and your father? So Stanley's my father, Steven's my uncle. Okay. Right? So they're the ones that really brought the business into advanced manufacturing. So did you always think you were gonna go into the business? No. Uh, you know, I mean I grew up around the business both my mother and father were very involved. Uh, my mother was a key because she was a, a guiding light with those two brothers, providing the organization and support. She was the hub of activity. But I grew up with you know the payroll being done at the kitchen table, uh, my wow. father voting at 10 at night. I mean, it was a traditional family business in those days, Yeah, long before we've professionalized. And we were much smaller. So I grew up you know, with my sister, who's eight, 20 months younger than me, thinking, God, there's got to be an easier way than, you know, cutting metal for a living. Mm -hmm. You know, but one thing led to another. And, you know, here I am today. I've been working here 23 years full time. And, uh, okay, so tell us the link between your passion for uh, bicycling and horse engineering. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, what's more wonderful than riding a bike? You know, I mean, we all learn it at a young age. Um, for me, it was a formative experience, and I loved uh, riding bicycles throughout my youth. In my teens, I, I, I got into uh, mountain biking. I had a friend uh, who was on the cross-country team in high school with me who was a, steeped in Italian cycling tradition, and he was an influence on me getting into cycling. Hmm. Uh, I, I got into road cycling when I was at university and I joined the cycling team and, and just found that cycling was a passion. Uh, the health and wellness aspect um, were great and I really loved the competition as well. My grandfather had you know, a long history of working with bicycles and I liked the mechanical side as well. So I competed a lot during my college years and in my 20s. I still compete a lot, but those were the early years. Where were you in college? I went to Boston University and then I finished at Boston College. And and you were on the the actual university's cycling team. That's impressive. It was a club sport, but okay. it's uh, uh, very 
very popular in New England, a lot of college teams here. And uh, I did all different types of cycling, and over the years that's evolved into all different types of endurance sports. You know, there's road cycling, mountain biking, cyclocross, which is one of my passions, which I know we're gonna speak about, uh, triathlon, adventure racing, you name it. I've done a lot of different things on bicycles. Um, now it's a family affair. My wife and my kids are very involved with cycling. That's awesome. In 1997, I got together with a group of friends, and we were at a race, and we were all wearing different jerseys and lamenting that our teammates didn't show up. And I think that there was a, some joking around, and someone said, you know, we should just form our own team. And then someone said, oh, that takes money and support. And I said, no, I think that's a great idea. Let's see what we can do. I bet my family would be interested. So we put together... Um, the horse engineering cycling team, which wow. involved team for sports, and we're 21 years running now. We've had a lot of cyclists come through the team. There's been a handful of people that have worked with me over the years who have been affiliated with the team, and and a big chunk of the team are folks from elsewhere. They, they're all over Connecticut and Massachusetts. They don't work for the company, but they're part of the network, and they've been a big part of the team. What is the team? What Which... Um, cycling category is the team competing in? Multiple. So it's it's road cycling, it's mountain biking, and in particular it's cyclocross. Uh, and now, um, this is the second year that we've had the Team Horst Junior Squad. We're f- affiliated with the CCAP, which is the Connecticut Cycling Advancement Program, which is a nonprofit that seeks to help children take up cycling as a healthy sport. So uh, t- tell me about this, the, this uh, cyclocross. Cr- cyclocross that is a, a cross between craziness and bicycling. Sure. Yeah, so cyclocross's roots go way back, nearly 100 years, to European tradition. Uh, there's a lot of stories about how it came about, but it, it was typically an off-season uh, aspect of the sport. Uh, you use a bicycle that has the similar geometry to a road bicycle. So it has drop style bars. It has uh, normally 700 seat tires so uh, and wheels, so uh, road style geometry. However, the bicycles are made with a bit more clearance for mud and a little wider tire, typically 30 to 35C. And today we would call it a hybrid bicycle or a gravel grinder or an adventure bicycle. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, it was called a cyclocross bicycle. The sport is done on a course that is typically closed, uh, so 1.5 to 3 kilometers, so a couple miles at the most, and it's done in laps or loops. It's described as steeplechase with a bicycle, right? So if you think about the steeplechase, there's hurdles. And there are hurdles in cyclocross. There are forced dismounts. But because it's run in parks and at schools, uh, it's mostly off-road. But it's not mountain biking. It's a little tamer than that. And it's very accessible. And it's extremely popular throughout the country. And it is mostly done from September through Christmas. The European season goes uh, from September through February, culminating with the World Championships. The European season is a bit longer because uh, their winters are a little more mild and because it's a professional sport. 
If you look at the Benelux countries, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, France, Italy, Germany, it's huge. In Belgium, uh, they will attract upwards of 40,000 spectators at a cyclocross race on a wow. set. So it's, it's their NFL. Huh. Fascinating. Because it's relatively unknown to most people, I think, in America. Don't you think? Uh, yes, certainly. I, I think it's changing a little. Uh, the large uh, bicycle manufacturing company Trek, based in Wisconsin, just hosted uh, one of two U.S.-based World Cup races. Uh, they have been streaming European events through their website, and they're doing a lot to promote the sport. Uh, in any given weekend around the country, there could be two or three dozen races. I was in Massachusetts yesterday. There were about 450 competitors at this event in a variety of categories. One hallmark of the U.S. Uh, sport is that it's very amateur friendly. So the course is the same course that the elites uh, will ride on that you and your kids can ride on. And uh, it's, it, it's great for kids and families because you're not on the roads. You're not deep in the woods. You're in a park-like setting uh, with uh, food trucks and uh, vendors and a variety of, of things in a, beautiful, in a beautiful spot. So cyclocross has a little bit of a counterculture edge to it within the cycling community. Uh, people associate it with ringing cowbells and mud. And uh, because it's done in the fall and winter, you know, the weather's always a factor. Are most are most cyclists like you, where they're into all the different styles, or are most people specialists? Like, no, I just do mountain. I just do road racing. Are you or are you typical? I, I would say I'm typical. I mean, I, it does vary, but there are folks who move from one aspect of the sport to the other. You know, they may get tired of the road cycling scene. There's been a trend to moving off road in a a large part because of the dangers of riding on the road. Uh, with distracted driving at an all-time mm-hmm. high, people are seeking uh, dirt roads and, and paths. So cyclocross really um, draws people in. The other big niche in the sport of cycling right now is one of the only places that the industry is growing, and that's gr- what they call gravel grinding. It's kind of a slang term, but it's, it, it's basically longer distance off-road riding, but on a cyclocross-style bike. Uh, there are events held throughout the country. It combines a bit of randonnée, which is navigating by bicycle, uh, with what, what's called the Grand Fondo, which is group riding. It's somewhat competitive in nature, but it's not nearly as competitive as the pure racing side of the sport. Uh, Scott, I'm interested in how you've uh, integrated uh, your athletic career, your love of biking into your business career and how the two have meshed and how you've ultimately developed a product line around it. Thanks, Lloyd. It's you know been a passion of mine. Uh, I mean, I, going back to the early 90s when my grandfather helped me save up for my first titanium bicycle, um, we chose to work with uh, a fabricator that uh, was based in um, the Boston area. Uh, the, the brand of the bicycle was Spectrum, and Tom Kellogg is the frame builder. He's based in Pennsylvania, 
but he was in partnership with a company called Merlin Metalworks, and they actually did the welding on his bicycles that were made from titanium. He only did the, the steel bicycles, but then he did the finishing on the bike himself. Uh, he designed it, it was custom, and that whole process really was intriguing to me. I have a great friend, uh, Richard Sachs, who's based here in Connecticut. You know, I, I can see just over the top of my camera here, uh, one of Richard Sachs's frames hanging on my wall. And you may recall that name because I wrote a story for Today's Machining World probably more than 10 years ago now. And there was a sidebar about Richard Sachs. He's one of the preeminent custom frame builders and he's based right here in Deep River, Connecticut. He's very involved with cyclocross. So the, the metalworking side of the bicycle industry, both frame building as well as componentry, has always been of interest to me because of our machining background. Uh, so many of these companies uh, use machining and forming as key processes. My grandfather and I always had ideas about how we could develop bicycle products and seems like, you know, we were always too busy with the day-to-day, -day, handling the job shop customers that kept us afloat. But about, I don't know, maybe, it's, it's nearly 15 years ago now, I can't recall the exact origins. We needed um, some bicycle toe spikes. So when you look at a cyclocross shoe, or a mountain bike shoe, uh, there, are typically lugs that give you traction when you are off the bicycle. Uh, typically you're on trail, so the conditions could be muddy, they could be sandy, they could be slick. The lugs are not enough to keep traction. So manufacturers would put in these little studs, you know, steel spikes in the toe. Think of them like soccer cleats. Okay. In cycling parlance, when you refer to the cleat on a shoe, that's referring to the piece that connects with the pedal. Mm -hmm. So if you have a skiing background, you think about your binding in your boot. Your boot mates with the binding, which is mounted to the skis. The development of clipless bicycle pedals came out of the skiing world, right? So you used to have a flat platform pedal with a steel toe clip and a strap that you would cinch down to hold your shoe to your pedal. But in the 80s, clipless technology was developed so that the cleat clicked right into the pedal and allowed you some rotation and you could pull up on the pedal and get a lot more power without your foot coming out of the pedal. And it was right. safe. I, I've seen that on, that's like it is on the snowboards too, right? There's some with the straps and then some where you just step in and lock it in. That's what you're talking about? Correct. And if you fall on a snowboard, you're affixed. You cannot come out of it. If you fall on skis, you will eject from the binding. Well, pedal technology is similar to ski technology. You can't, you don't want to remain attached to the bicycle. Right, you right. You pop out and it's, it's, it allows you to pop your foot out at a stoplight if you're riding on the road. My point is that that's what the cleat is called. My uh, my analogy with this, the bicycle toe spikes or the studs that we manufacture are similar to a, psych, uh, to a soccer cleat in that you use them to keep traction on the turf, all right? Uh, so a bicycling shoe has a cleat for connection to the pedal and it may have spikes or studs 
for traction when you are actually walking or running with the shoe. It's hard to describe. No, but so you're without uh, without pictures or examples. Right, but so the ones that you are producing, those don't lock in. Those just kind of grip with the spikes. Correct. So what we make are... And that lends itself to mountain biking or cyclocross. Correct. Most cycling shoes that are designed for off-road use have two threaded holes. They're nut certs. And when when you receive your shoes, there's a dummy screw in them. Some companies uh, set... There are other companies that sell spikes or studs. They're referred to, stu- uh, referred to as studs in European parlance or in the UK, but we refer to them as spikes in, here in the US. And they uh, are anywhere from 12 to 18 millimeters long. And we use them to uh, grip the ground when running on steep or wet or muddy terrain. And we manufacture six different styles of these in uh, six different sizes or lengths. We make them from stainless steel or titanium. We patented the design. Uh, It all started back when we couldn't buy a standard set. Mm -hmm. They weren't available. And uh, we said to ourselves, well, we've got a machine shop. We should just make our own. And I said, well, if we're going to make them, let's improve upon the design. So we improved upon the design. We made them out of stainless steel. We made them with rolled threads for high strength. We made them with an integrated washer face. Uh, previously, they were you know, the cheap ones on the market were made from hex stock and uh, were chromoly and sometimes plated and they rusted and we just wanted to make it better. And that's why you started using the other materials, the titanium and correct. You know, so we we started with stainless and then several years later we we launched a titanium version. We also sell them as kits and pro kits. So the idea of, of actually changing your spikes based on the conditions, a different length for different course styles or for foul weather, uh, you make an adjustment to your sh- bicycle uh, tires, but this is an adjustment to your bicycle shoes. So we were the first ones to pioneer that. So now you have a product. How did that evolve into um, something that you could sell? How, how did you develop the, uh, the expertise to sell it? Well, I mean, at first, we made it for ourselves, right? We had, we had a friend, uh, Stu Thorne, who owns a company called cyclocrossworld.com. Uh, he's partnered with Cannondale and has been a very important part of the U.S. cyclocross industry for many years. And he shipped us samples of what he couldn't get. So we looked at at it and said, we can improve upon it. I told you that part of the story. And at first, we we only sold the spikes through him because being a contract manufacturer, we couldn't take a credit card. We didn't do our own marketing, Uh, but he did that for us. And Mm -hmm. he he sold the spikes, uh, our spikes, we called them horse spikes at the time, um, through his online store. We provided them to his team. They were our first sponsored riders. And he, to this day, sponsors some of the most talented professional cyclocross riders in the country. And we have an ongoing relationship with him. But it was a few years after that when we decided that we were going to really innovate and go beyond just one length. And we were going to improve the materials, 
improve the design. We wanted to patent the design and we wanted to sell it as kits that we figured it would be more prudent to go direct. And did you help engineer it? Who did you work with to, to design it? I have a colleague here by the name of Arthur Rohde. Uh, both of our names are on the patent. Art's worked here for 21 years. Uh, you know, he started here out of college, and he and I are two of the five members of our senior leadership team. So he is the general manager of our business, and he's a fellow uh, cyclocross competitor. So uh-huh. we met through the cycling community, and he's been a longtime employee of the business. And the two of us partnered on this. It, it, our goal from the beginning was to do something that would you know, feed our passion and use our capacity and capabilities, but it had to, it had to support itself. We, you know, I'd still, I still take uh, criticism at times from my controller. If, if, if we spend a little too much time on this, she's great about it. She understands the passion in business. That was what I was going to ask, ask about. Yeah. Yeah, no, but it has to be profitable. So we, we've learned a lot from it. So there's some intangible benefits. I mean, just, just the whole concept of direct marketing, uh, doing the website, uh, the branding. Do you only sell on the web? No, uh, we have, uh, in addition to Stu at cyclocrossworld.com, we have other online retailers in the US. We have online retailer in Canada. We have an online retailer in Australia. But I mean, you only sell online. It's not in stores, correct? There's a handful of bike shops that have stocked them over the years, but no, it's it, it's not the kind of product that you sell in stores. Yeah, see, to me, it seems like that would make sense to, to do it online as far as profitability. Exactly. You, there's a huge distribution industry in cycling products. The whole bicycle retail industry has shifted. They just had their big trade show in Reno. Many of the private family-owned bike shops are going the way of the dodo. Sounds like machine shops, right, Lloyd? Uh, They're becoming factory outlets for big brands like Trek and Specialized, and uh, they just can't remain profitable selling product uh, in competition with all the online stores that are out there. So we eliminate the middleman. We're selling a locally made product direct. You know, we can improve our packaging and branding, and we will in the coming year. We actually have an initiative underway to rebrand, strengthen our website. It's going to help us with our aerospace efforts and our career uh, skills recruiting efforts as well. But it's going to also help the cycling industry products that we're developing. Tell me, I'm guessing that the networking of your passion for cycling has... Uh, been invaluable to you in your business and in your life. Can you tell me about how the networking has affected you? I don't go a week without someone saying, oh, we saw one of your team riders or uh, someone spotted your jersey you know, outside of Boston. Uh, so the team itself has really uh, brought renown for the business. People associate us with the cyclocross community. Uh, Many of them understand what we do in the bigger picture. I was at a race in Massachusetts last month and one of my teammates brought over a guy who said that um, he he knew of us and he wanted to know if we could uh, machine some Inconel fasteners. It was a scientific instrumentation company. And uh, he's like, I hope you don't mind me approaching you on a Sunday at a cross race, but 
can you give me your contact information? We want to send you an RFQ. There's little wins like that. How about with the aerospace business? Have you made a lot of connections with Pratt & Whitney people through your racing? Yeah, we, we've, made, we've made it with some. I, 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 I lump what we do with the cycling and racing into the broader category of community involvement. You know, between our support for conservation initiatives, uh, our philanthropy, and then the cycling, and now getting children outdoors, certainly that's resonated with folks that are customers. You know, I mean, you we count Pratt among them. They're one of the biggest players in this oligopoly that rules aerospace. Uh, you know, but there's other companies in this part of the country like GE Aviation and UTC Aerospace Systems and Command Aerospace. And we find engineers that are into cycling, and I, I don't think they're buying more parts from us because of our involvement, but it helps for them to know that we care about what we do, we have a passion, and we've developed our own product. I would think so. If uh, I would think that if, if an engineer had an issue with thread rolling, who happens to be a cyclist, that you would be the first person he would call or she would call. Uh, because they know your background, they know your your toe spikes, they know a lot about you just from your cycling career. Sure, and you know, right now our our marketing is kind of uh, unified in that we have single presence on social media for horse engineering, and it can be a little bit ADD. And one day you're reading about aerospace or seeing an Instagram video about. Swiss screw machining and the next day we're advertising that we're at a certain race and over the next several months we're likely going to separate that and create a unique brand still with the horse name for the cycling products in order to champion it and give it its own edge whereas for our contract manufacturing business and primarily driven by aerospace we're going to you know further establish the horse engineering brand uh, we're working with a consultant right now to resolve that, and we're in the brainstorming phase. I assume both businesses are growing. They are, but you know, you've got to understand that the cycling business is a niche. Our goal is to develop more products. We'd like to actually be on the bicycle. There's many ideas that we have, and just given the strength of business right now in aerospace and, and some of the other markets we serve, that's our priority. So sometimes we have to wait until the end of the day or on a Saturday morning to, you know, mess around with some of the cycling-related stuff. It, it can't be a distraction, you know, not for our, for our team here, and, and certainly we wouldn't want our customers to expect that. We want it to be profitable business, but it has to remain in its place. Longer term, we, we would like to grow that and uh, further develop our own products uh, within cycling and beyond. But... For now, this is where it's at. Uh, one cool thing that we did recently uh, that's worth sharing is we developed a titanium anodizing process. It's uh, it's not functional when it comes to cyclocross toe spikes. I think it looks great on Instagram. Uh, I tested it and it wears off. Uh, it's popularly used in the titanium jewelry industry, but we, we, we figured out how to do it. Uh, we set up a, a workbench and we've got all the chemicals and processes and the, uh, the power unit and we played around with it and we're making colored spikes. So, so you're anodizing in-house? 
Yeah, just titanium. Yeah, I mean, it's you, you've got to realize that titanium anodizing is different from aluminum anodizing. There's no dye involved. It's still an electrolysis, you know, with an anode and a cathode, but you're actually changing the surface color of titanium uh, just by applying voltage in a salt bath. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. talking about networking, and this probably won't be uh, in the podcast, but um, we've just been approached by somebody who uh, wants to make uh, titanium fasteners now uh, in the U.S. because he can't get them now from China. And we were just looking at the part and wondering how it could be done on a multi-spindle, and maybe it can't be done profitably on a multi-spindle. Maybe it's a Swiss part. But uh, we may give you a call and ask you your opinion on uh, making this titanium faster. Sure. Keep us in mind. We're always happy to help. Uh, do you do a lot of work in titanium? We do, yeah. We do a whole family of titanium tie rods for one of our customers that's in the cabin pressure business side of aerospace. These These titanium tie rods range in size, and they drive the impeller that's actually the compressor that creates cabin pressure the small ones are for small business and regional jets and the huge ones that go up right up to the a380 has the cycling business given you many contacts in europe and around the world uh yes but within the cycling industry uh, i mean like i mentioned we do distribution through um retailers in united kingdom france Japan, Australia, and Canada. That's the primary markets where we've uh, marketed the cross bikes. The product itself could easily be ripped off, you know, and I would hate to see that happen, but it's it's just a screw machine part. I hate to say it that <laughs> way. There isn't much of a market for cyclocross in China, but I'm sure it's coming. They do hold some events there, so it's there. Do you want to do business in China? Yeah. I mean, it would be great to have our our spikes used there. Right now, we're focused on Japan because there's a really strong cyclocross community there. I see. Mm. Any Japanese screw machine shop could make these, so we wanted to make sure that our patented product was in the hands of users there. Uh, we we patented it internationally, so it's not just a U.S. patent. But you know, we don't have the resources to go fight someone in China or sure. if they copy us. Uh, I mean, we send them the letter, but I don't know anything about that. I'm sure I would figure it out. Let's move back to the uh, screw machine world. Sure. Do you, do you see much work coming back from China now in your world? Yeah. So my world is, is not affected just by China. When you think about aerospace, the business requires an ecosystem. Uh -huh. So here in southern New England, we have one of the largest aerospace ecosystems in the world. Next month, uh, we have the Aerospace Component Manufacturers Cluster Trade Show. The ACM is the name of our industry organization. It's a, a nonprofit. We have nearly 120 companies in Connecticut and Western Massachusetts, and we're, we're in this game together. Uh, from the small parts that we make to some of the large complex parts that some of our customers make, and then all the special process providers, including the heat treaters, coders, testers, they all are part of this ecosystem. And there are other ecosystems around the country where this is strong. I mean, there's some in the Chicago area where you folks hail from. Obviously, Seattle, Southern California, clustered around L.A., a little bit in Florida, a little bit in Detroit, a little bit in Arizona. 
little bit in Ohio, you know where they've clustered around these aerospace OEMs. When you go internationally, uh, you've got to look to places like Mexico, uh, obviously Western Europe, but they carry the same cost structure as the Northeast. Uh, Japan, there is uh, an expanding market in Brazil, in India, in Eastern Europe, particularly Poland and the Czech Republic, and then of course China, where we started talking about this. So when we when we talk about insourcing or U.S. customers or international um, multinationals bringing work back to the U.S., it's not just from China, but it's from many of their other lower cost regions where they've created beachheads. I was visiting with a customer two weeks ago and one of the interesting parts of the conversation that we had was about vertical integration, right? So we are used to going to our OV suppliers every day. I mean, we're at the NDT house sometimes twice a day at both our locations in Massachusetts and Canada. I'm sorry, in Massachusetts and Connecticut. I don't know why I said Canada. Uh, so Connecticut and Massachusetts is where we have operations and we have an NDT house for passivation, FBI, MPI, and we're, our truck is there almost twice a day. Heat treatment, same thing. So the conversation I had with this customer was how our competitors internationally are vertically integrated. And I didn't get into a long discussion with them, but I was pointing out that as a private family business, our core competency is machining. And that we didn't get a government grant or the government didn't build our heat treat facility for us. And that our competition internationally is often not a small family that started a business 72 years ago. It's the government saying we want aerospace capability and they seed these businesses if, if, if they're not already a quasi-governmental business itself. And that's why they have all that capability in-house because they don't have all the little mom and pops in a cottage industry to service them. Which do you think is a better more successful model well i mean we've we've built our business on our model and see to me i would think your i would think your way potentially would be better i yeah i mean i pause only because yes it's what exists here and if you think back to our our prior efforts to expand in mexico where we had a maquiladora from 2000 and five to 2015, right? So an almost 10 year period where we operated in our own factory in Sonora, we got up to 50 people. We couldn't get a damn thing heat treated. And when a heat treater came in, he wanted a $2,000 oven charge. And we held out a palm full of pins and said, we get this done for an $80 lot in South Windsor, Connecticut, 10 minutes away. We can't afford to, to heat treat I these two, two grand. So we, we thought about vertically integrating, but it just wasn't going to work because the capital investment was too great. And to be experts in machining and in metallurgy and in coatings and in heat treatment is just not conceivable for a small business. So if you compare this with what is likely happening with, with these companies in India and China and elsewhere, uh, they are large facilities set up around the defense industry. Now, I have to add the caveat that I haven't toured any of these facilities myself. I'm, I haven't been, I've been to Singapore, I've been to Japan, and seen factories in those places, but I haven't been to India and I haven't been to China. But I hear from my customers, so I know what they're describing, 
and it doesn't sound like family business. It doesn't sound like privately held business to me. It sounds like an entrepreneur partnering with the country. Very interesting, Scott. If if there's something that you'd like to add before we wind this up, uh, what would it be? What haven't we covered that uh, is important to you that you'd like to cover? Yeah, I, I, th- I thought about a th- few things when you invited me to speak this morning. I've mentioned it a few times. I mean, we're, we're, we remain a private family-owned business after all these years. Um, we, we're in the midst of this sea change where uh, an entire generation is moving on. That's not just in the factories, but it's within factory ownership. You know, I don't go a week without being approached by a credi- credible company that wants to break into aerospace, break into precision machining, or expand in that market. And we've resisted. We have our own strategy. Uh, we have the horse operating system. We use the Rockefeller habits as our methodology with um, some influence from EOS, another, another operating system. And our goal is to remain private, but who knows what the future brings. But I've seen all the companies around us change. I mean, down the street, across the street, private equity has flooded the market. You've seen it on the machine tool side. You've seen it on the tooling side. And now it's happening on the supplier side as well. So that was one thing that's worth mentioning, and I'm sure that that's on your radar. You and I have spoke about, spoken about mergers and acquisitions in the past. Um, we have a small history of doing acquisitions, but by no means are we experts at it. You know, we're, we're still trying, uh, is how I think about it. That's, that's sort of, you know, one interesting if thing. If you could add one capability now, what would it be? Uh, the capability to do larger, more complex parts with milling as the primary process, right? That, that, that comes to mind pretty quickly. Um, we're very sophisticated with turning, but we produce small parts. You know, we, we survive. We keep 140 people and their families going by making really small, inexpensive parts for a very advanced aerospace industry. And in order to scale organically, uh, we have to find our way up the food chain. Uh, one thing we did this summer is we, after a year of planning, we launched our own in, in-house cylindrical grinding process. Uh, we were doing it in our tool room, but we brought in a half a million dollar Kellenberger from Switzerland, and that's going to complement the 10 or so centerless grinders that we have. Uh, our grinding has always supported our thread rolling business, but cylindrical grinding is something that we're uh, staking uh, more of a claim to. And we have more than enough work just to insource right now. So I don't anticipate that we'll offer it as a service, but if we grow it, we will be able to quote more parts that have uh, those features. You obviously have a lot of uh, balls in the air uh, with the bicycling, with the aerospace, with all the organizations. What is the key to your management, your time management, your own productivity? Uh, Do you feel deflected often from one and the other or, or do you have a good system to have this under control? Well, you know, I'll answer the question from a personal perspective as, you know, one of the leaders of this business, you know, I, you reference juggling a lot of balls. Uh, I, you know, I have a young family. I have children that are in uh, elementary school and middle yeah, school. Yeah, I forgot about that. That too. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so family is, is first and, um, uh, I've always had a philosophy that 
you know, personal family business, right? And though family as a responsibility comes first, true responsibility is to yourself first. So you have to be healthy, strong, uh, vital. Uh, otherwise, your family can't rely on you and your business can't rely on you. So if you focus on the things to stay healthy, uh, nutrition, diet, exercise, sleep. Right, I remember. Are you, are you vegan? I am, yes. Yep. So I have a plant-based plant-based diet, and lately I've been super focused on quality sleep. I'm reading a book about sleep. Most of my books I listen to. What time do you usually go home after a, a day? And do you, do you work from home? Do you... We have four buildings at three plant sites. It's a little bit inefficient. One of my big uh, initiatives right now is a real estate strategy, trying to get at least three of the four plants under one roof. Uh, so it's a major project. Um, I'll, I mean, I, I don't view work as something that happens in a solitary place. Obviously, I can hear the factory running outside my wall and people need to be at their machines. Uh, despite automation, you know, low volume, high mix aerospace is very much a people intensive business. But for my role, I can be anywhere connecting at any time with my phone or laptop uh, to our ERP system and my communications. So I get home usually by 6.30, sometimes 7, if I'm riding my bike. Okay. Usually by 7.30. In the morning, you get there by 7.30? Yes. I mean, I'm an early So about 12-hour 12, 12 days. Typically. Scott, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. We've learned a lot, and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Hey, everybody. First, we just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. It boosts our egos, and of course, your ears are the reason we do this. But it would be great if you could subscribe and leave a review, as it'll help other people discover it. Talk to you soon.